Hello and welcome to my series of podcasts called The Voice of the Mad in Britain between the 17th and the 20th century. This is the fifth of five podcasts. It's a block that was designed to explore the experience of mental patients within institutions in the 19th century. In 1880, at the age of 47, a woman called Christian Watt began to write down recollections of her life. She began not long after being admitted as a patient to Aberdeen Royal Mental Asylum at Cornhill. And she continued writing until her death at the age of 90 in 1923. She was born into a Fraserburgh fishing family and spent much of her working life selling fish. She led a hard existence, losing most of the men dear to her, drowned at sea. Anxiety and grief eventually led to mental breakdown. The extracts that you see on the website come from the first time she was institutionalised on the 15th of November 1877. The spell she spent at Cornhill offered her a respite and she was discharged on 29 December 1877, described in the records as recovered. But unfortunately, she was soon readmitted and then, from 1879, spent the remainder of her life as a patient in the asylum. By the way, her original account was written in pencil because pens were prohibited in all public asylums. She wrote with frankness and sensitivity about both herself and her fellow patients, making the best of her very prolonged stay. It lasted 45 years. Asylums were becoming more open and more homely in the late 19th century, or at least Scottish asylums were. They pioneered unlocked wards, for example. Visiting too became easier and patient letterboxes started to appear in some asylums. The physician superintendent that Christian names was Dr. Jimison, but for much of her time in the asylum it was Dr. William Reed who was superintendent between 1884 and 1917. The asylum was established a long time back in 1800 and got its royal charter in 1852. Christian, from her own account, plainly thought well of the place and its staff. Late in her life, she refused the chance to leave it. Despite the appearance to the contrary, the doctor's euphemistic invitation to go to the asylum for a rest disguises the fact that Christian's committal was involuntary. You might remember from last time that Herman Charles Merivale was also so committed. 
committal required medical certification that a period in an institution would benefit the patient, but it was compulsory. This explains her remark about the stigma. The better off could sign themselves in for rest cure, what was euphemistically known as rest cure in private clinics, safe from the stigma of certification and the trauma of involuntary confinement in an asylum. Scotland's public asylums did allow voluntary admissions at this date and there were calls to expand this provision across Britain after 1890 but voluntary admissions to public asylums were not common until after 1930. Now this is Christian's own account which is what makes it fascinating and gives it its greatest strength. It's open, it's thoughtful, it's dignified and it's articulate. However, as an account of why she was in the asylum, it has a basic weakness. Christian's description of the reasons for her institutionalisation is heavily edited. The papers accompanying her admission paint a much fuller and a more disturbing picture of her state of mind that she describes in her autobiography. In these documents she was reported to be, and I quote, in a state of great excitement, violent and incoherent in her talk. She labours also under delusions of a religious nature. The certifying doctor observed, she informed me that I was her saviour. She poured out a volley of abuse of a most dreadful description and all and sundry especially her own clergyman. Her conduct was most immoral, he added. She is usually a very quiet, religious woman. To this testimony, the case note summary adds, and again I quote, she poured several bottles of paraffin, bought especially for the purpose, over the floor of her house and set fire to it. She also anointed a hen with paraffin and roasted it alive for a sacrifice, and wished to offer up her son. It was also noted in these documents that she had recently given birth and was breastfeeding, and this may have been a contributing factor to her insanity, along with bereavement, grinding poverty, and the strains of raising small children. So generally the asylum documents paint a much more disturbed picture of Christian's mental health than is to be found in her own account. There are several reasons why this might be. Christian was writing at some distance in time from the events that the certifying doctor described. She may have forgotten or preferred to forget just how disturbed she really was. She may have been reluctant to recount some of the potentially embarrassing details. Psychiatric patients often refuse to accept the label placed on them by medical practitioners. Equally, the doctors may have biases. They may have emphasised the wilder aspects of her behaviour to justify the need for her 
to be placed in an asylum. There is an important lesson for the historian here. We tend to be less critical of people who seem oppressed. In Christian's case, multiply so. Female, working class, poor, and allegedly insane. And so we see their voices as somehow more authentic than other sources. In contrast, we tend to be sceptical about the claims of those who seem to have positions of authority to defend. Perhaps it's best to stand back from both types of account, comparing them and looking at the context in which they were made. That's what historians do best. By writing, Christian was appealing to the public, or even to posterity. But there were even more public ways in which the boundary between sanity and madness, mental capacity and incapacity, might be mediated. Next time I'd like to look at a celebrated case from Victorian times, which shows how the public understood both the legal and social issues surrounding attempts to draw a line between mental ability and disability. Unlike asylum admission, this was not just a medical decision, but involved many different opinions. I hope you'll join me to find out about the fascinating case of William Wyndham.